The third thing I want to talk about is when faith in God has been shaken. When the cracks in the foundation go all the way down to bedrock, and you start to wonder if, if, if I even believe in God, or if I can trust Him, considering all that I've gone through at His hand. Sometimes when I sit down with people and they say, oh, I've got a question about church history. Okay, great, tell me about it. And we'll talk and we'll dig and we'll dive and sometimes I'll just stop and say, do you still believe in God? It usually takes them back and says, whoa, 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 I'm, I mean, atheism is such a, a scary word for so many people these days. And I just want to call out the elephant in the room just to see if it's there. I'll say, do you believe in it? Like, whoa, whoa, my question is about plural marriage. Or it's about race and the priesthood. Awesome. And we'll get there. I promise. I'm just wondering if the crack that started there, or maybe didn't, but the crack that appears there on the surface, if it goes down, and if so, how deep? And it's interesting to talk with people that often it's life experience that has brought the crack to that depth. Do I really believe in God? Do I trust him? In fact, throughout the history of church education, Institute was always focused on college students because college kids were the ones seen as being bombarded with the philosophies of men and being typically away from home, away from the source of strength and stability they grew up in. They're, they're now branches, far away from roots. In the last generation or so, it seems to be shifting, especially with the internet. We're not, it almost seems like we're bombarded with the philosophies of men more after graduation than before it. In fact, from my own personal experiences of talking with people that are struggling in their faith, I get more from the working professionals, the 25 to 30, than I ever get from the 18 to 22. And I think that part of the reason why is it's not that they're, they're learning all these things in their philosophy class. It's that I'm getting older and my life still hasn't turned out the way that I always thought that it would. Growing up in the church, it was priesthood at 12 and 14 and 16. It was young women's medallion and it was programs and mission at this age and everything was set and I knew I was on the path and I was progressing and I checking off boxes and, and making it. And I went on my mission and I came home and I was ready for the next step and it didn't come. And what am I supposed to do now? I think so often now it's, it's unmet expectations. It's wondering, is there something wrong with me? I, I hope not, but if that's the case, then is there something wrong with the plan? Is there something wrong with God? Is he aware of my circumstances? What, why, isn't it, why isn't he there giving me the blessings that he seemed to promise me all growing up? And so if our questions are on that level, do I believe in God? Then Jacob chapter 5, I hope, will steady your shaken faith in a Lord of the vineyard who loves his trees. I want to emphasize the word his because it's the one he uses in verse 4. In verse 4 he says, It came to pass that the master of the vineyard went forth and he saw that his olive tree began to decay. He didn't say the olive tree first. When he first introduces it here, he says it's his. It's mine. In that Isaiah shortened version, Isaiah chapter 5, he says that the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. In Exodus, when he calls uh, the house of Israel his peculiar people, in that instance, peculiar did not mean strange, although yes, admittedly, we fill that uh, description as well. 
it was peculiar as in a peculiarity. That is something peculiar to him. That, is, that belongs to him. He wants his peculiar people. And this is his tree. In verse 7, he adds one letter to that. And that letter makes a beautiful difference. He talks about worrying about this tree. It's not just his tree. It's this tree. This single solitary tree. I'm a, ma a master, a lord of the whole vineyard. But they belong to me. And it's this specific one that I'm worried about. To pick us out in a crowd. My brother sang in the BYU Men's Chorus for Mac Wilberg. And he said Mac Wilberg was so good at hearing things that he could be conducting a huge choir of men and say, oh, there's someone over in the tenor section, maybe three rows back, that's about a quarter of a note off. A quarter of a note? That's not even space enough between half notes on a piano keyboard. But someone with that well-trained ear, there's one over here that I'm worried about. How can I help? Let's get up a little or down a little. Let's just work on your on your pitch. And the Lord... All of these trees are his. And if this one needs some extra attention, God will give it. I think that helps explain all the verbs that we've seen so far. It's why he spends so much effort, diligent labor with us to dig, to dung, to nourish, to prune, to, to plant, do all these things. But as I searched through this chapter to see all of its verbs, there was a few that had never stood out to me before. One that comes up so often is the verb to see. He wants to see his trees. Watch shows up. Look is repeated. Behold comes up often. I testify that God is aware of us. That he's not simply delegating responsibility and telling servants to go dig and dung. Those can be done kind of almost sight unseen, you can dig around trees and plant and fertilize and things without even looking upward. But this Lord of the Vineyard is watching. He watching over Israel slumbers not nor sleeps. Another verb that comes often in this chapter is go down. It always shows up in pairs. Verse 15 and 16. Verse 29 and 30. Verse 38 and 39. Because every time the Lord says to his servant, let us go down, and the next verse, and they went down. That might ring some bells for some of you. Let us go down, and they went down. But that idea of going down to the vineyard, how do we say go down? We say descend. Spanish speakers, how do you say with? Con. Well, what is condescension? But going down with us. Christ's condescension to come down to be with us on our level. For when, when, when Nephi sees the birth of Christ and the baptism of Christ, the angel keeps telling him, now do you understand the condescension of God? God sending his only begotten son, they come down into the vineyard to see firsthand what things are like. The word gather appears the word lay up is repeated frequently, to preserve. God wants to gather us into the garners, which is the temple as described in Alma 26. There's even one place where it says he wants to taste. 
He tastes the fruit. He doesn't just look at it. doesn't just thump it and do all those weird things that we do in the supermarket to see if the fruit's good, none of which help me at all. He wants to taste it. I don't care about outward appearances. I look at the heart. I want to taste how you're doing. I don't care what other people are saying about you, too high or too low. I want to taste. I want to get past the exterior and really know how you're doing spiritually. I sometimes laugh and think, I wonder what the first human being was who stumbled across a pineapple and had the guts to give them a try. You want to talk about an uninviting fruit. But if you can get past the exterior, euphoria is yours. For God being willing to taste our fruit, he knows who we really are. Why all the work? Verse 46, he asks the question, he, or he uses the phrase, all the care which we have taken. Why would God take so much care? He responds in verse 37 with the phrase, except we should do something for it. This tree is not going to make it, except we should do something for it. We have to act. We have to help, or it will not bear fruit. God is actively engaged in our lives. He is not a distant overseer. He's not an absentee landlord. He is, his spirit strives with us. He's fighting for us, even when life seems like it's fighting against us. I don't know if your life has gone according to what you thought it would, or if it's gone in completely different directions. But I do testify that God is there in the vineyard. He's got dirt under his fingernails. He's turning up soil. He'll claw it, claw it with his own fingers if he needs to, to try to nurture and nourish the tree. By the way, he's not just doing his chores. He's emotionally involved in this labor. He says over and over and over again, it grieveth me to lose this tree. It grieves me to lose the roots. It grieves me to lose the, free, the fruit. I'm devastated over this. Again, he's not just doing chores. He's acting out of love. Remember that famous verse in Moses 139? This is my work and my glory. As one who has a job that is both work and glory, I understand the beauty of that being synonymous. I know a lot of people whose work has nothing to do with their glory. I hate my job, but my work at least subsidizes my glory. It, allow, it pays me so that I can pay for my glory in other things. But for God, it's not that way. God's work is his glory. What he does, his work, is a reflection of who he is, what he glories in. And so it's not, uh, punch the time clock and i got to do another nine to five, bringing to pass immortality and eternal life. This is not another drudgery day on the, on the factory floor. This is, I love this. This is my work because it's my glory. And I... All the digging, dunging, pruning, transplanting is, is some of my watering is with tears. I grieve over my trees and I just want them to make it. I want them to. He says it over and over to his servant. The Lord of the vineyard wept and said unto his servant, this is verse 41, what could I have done more for my vineyard? In verse 47, he says, what could I have done more in my vineyard? But it's not just he's doing it in it, he's doing it for it. He goes back to that preposition in verse 49. What could I have done more for my vineyard? Three times he's wondering. 
He answers himself, by the way. Have I slackened my hand? No, I haven't. I've stretched forth my hand almost all the day long. I used to think, oh, did he miss time? You did it almost all the day long. When did you stop? And yet when he says, I have stretched forth my hand almost all the day long, he then ends the thought, and the end draweth nigh. I think that's the only part of the day he hasn't stretched forth his hand because that part of the day hasn't come yet. In other words, I've done it almost all day long, but the day's not over, and so I'm not done, and I'm going to keep stretching forth my hand. His hand is stretched out still, Isaiah repeats over and over and over again. The day's not over. I'm not done. I'm not out of tears. I'm not out of labor. And so please stay with me so that we can work on this together. I have done all, he says. And again, rhetorically, what could I have done more for my vineyard? In verse 60, he says, Why do all this work that I may have joy again in the fruit of my vineyard? I had joy with you once. You're my children. I want to have joy with you again. He says, perhaps, that's another one of his perhapses. I'll do all my part. Will you do any of yours? That perhaps I may rejoice exceedingly. This is the same God who says that if you should labor all your days in crying repentance and bring, save it be one branch unto me, how great shall be your joy with that fruit in the kingdom of my Father. And that's the joy that God gets when he says. I'll also say that as emotionally involved as God is in this labor, he wants us to be equally involved. When Enoch first saw the God who wept, he was shocked by this. But by the end of the chapter, the end of the experience, not only does Enoch understand God's tears, he joins God in them. It's Enoch's heart that stretches wide as eternity. And God wants us to feel the same thing. That's why he keeps asking for such diligence and exact obedience as we labor with him in the garden. Do you see these trees the way I do? Do you care as much about them as I do? I think he even tricks, the, that's a bad word, but he almost tricks his servant into seeing things because he asks this twice. This is in 26 and 27 and again in 49 and 50. So on two different visits, the Lord commands destruction of the unproductive branches. And that's it. Cut them off. This is the same kind of feeling behind that. Oh, I should have cut it off early because the bad overcame the good. And he, so he's telling his servant, just chop them and go. This is the pluck out this way. When he's really hoping for the pluck out this way. And what does he say? The servant responds, spare it a little longer. Now, there's two ways to look at that. You can see God the Father as the Lord of the vineyard and Jesus Christ as the servant and Christ interceding with the Father for us as he will. But knowing that the Father and the Son, both of them, their work and glory is to bring to pass our immortality and eternal life, another layer of this would be that Jesus Christ as the Lord of the vineyard and his mortal servants, whether prophets down to priests, uh, any of us, male, female, young, old, ordained, set apart, or not, 
will we say, will we be intermediaries between Christ and other people? If Christ says, give up on that person. Kind of tongue-in-cheek. Do we turn and say, would it be okay to spare it a little longer? Can we keep trying? I'll give you an example that helps illustrate it. I mean, if you've ever tried to go on a long road trip with little kids, we crisscrossed the nation from Tennessee to California or Tennessee to Utah several times when our kids were young. Um, actually, they're probably better road warriors than I am. I was probably the murmuring layman on those journeys. But imagine having millions of Israelites that you're trying to get out of Egyptian bondage into the Promised Land, and there's murmuring, murmuring, murmuring all the way along. At one point, Moses' response is classic and so daddy, father-like. Okay, this is like me getting to my breaking point on the, in the car trip. And Moses finally says to God, I didn't give birth to these people. They're not, they're not, they're not mine. I, I cannot handle this anymore. This is like when a dad says to his wife, your children, knowing full well they're his children too, right? We just got to the breaking point. Well, knowing that Moses has a breaking point and that it needs to be moved past, moved beyond it, the Lord suggests to Moses, Let's just torch him and start all over again. Let's just start anew. I, I did it with Noah. I'll do it with you, Moses. You, we had Adam, Noah. You'll be my third times the charm. What do you think? And it's Moses that intercedes. The one that just a few chapters ago was saying, these are not my kids. He says to the Father, but they are yours. And I guess in some ways they are mine too. Spare them a little longer. I'm amazed that this patient, loving, weeping father is trying to raise patient, weeping, loving servants as well. That we might treat other people as he treats them. I'll also just remind you quickly something you already know. When the servant asks the Lord in verse 21, why on earth would you plant anything here? How comest thou hither to plant this tree? It was the poorest spot of ground in the whole vineyard. And the Lord's response, counsel me not. Times where we wonder, why on earth would you plant me here? Why would you give me this body? Why would you give me this mind? Why would you put me in this situation or this set of circumstances? Why am I in this family? Counsel me not. In the same breath, he says, I knew this was poor ground. You're not telling me anything I didn't know. Why do you think I nurtured it this long time? The worse the soil, the greater the nourishment that I'll give it. These are compensatory blessings where the Lord sees our circumstance and more than makes up the difference in an attempt to help us grow. I'm old enough to have offered this prayer several times to Heavenly Father. Thank you for not listening to me. I would have messed that up. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have moved to Tennessee. And I would have missed out on everything. I wouldn't have had the children timed and spaced the way they are if it had been up to me. My marriage wouldn't have turned out as good as it has. My family wouldn't have turned out as wonderful as it is. My life would not be where I am if you had listened to me. Counsel me not. We have to just trust that God knows what he's doing. 
as he says at the end of, of this book, of this chapter, excuse me, verse 75, he says to his servant, Thou beholdest that I have done according to my will. Like, you see how I did that? I did what I thought I would do. I did what I planned to do. I did what I willed to do. And look at it out. Look at the end. This magnificent harvest. It worked. Just like I knew that it would. The last thing I'll say about God for those whose faith in him is shaking. This allegory sometimes talks about the natural tree. And sometimes it talks about the wild tree. Sometimes it talks about good or evil. Sometimes it talks about bitter or precious. But I think my favorite word to describe the tree shows up four times. In verse 54, in verse 56, and twice in verse 60. And it's talking about this original tree that had branches cut off and planted elsewhere. That's the scattering of Israel. And then later, that same those same branches cut from where they were transplanted and then grafted back into its original tree. Uh, that's the scattering of Israel and the gathering of Israel, which the Book of Mormon hits harder than anything I've ever seen. But what does it call that original tree? It doesn't call it wild or natural. It doesn't call it good or bad. It doesn't even call it original. It calls it their mother tree. All four times, Jesus Christ is our mother tree. We have a heavenly father, but we also have a heavenly mother. And the, the idea of a mother for this tree and God's love and concern. I just think of us coming home to parents. In, in Isaiah, there's two times in Isaiah 40. Once when Isaiah asks it, and then once the Lord asks it. When Isaiah asks it, he says, To whom will ye liken God? To what likeness can you compare him? And then the Lord echoes it with his own question. To whom then will ye liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? In other words, Isaiah, who was a master of metaphors and a genius when it came to figurative imagery, he's searching, what's a good, what's a good analogy? I, I, I confess, I think in analogies all the time. Whenever I'm teaching, whenever I'm helping people, I'm always trying to think, is there an analogy that would help with this? There have been times where I've laughed with my wife because I say something so simple and abundantly clear that I'm like, it's like, and I'll be searching for an analogy and then I'll go, Oh, wait, this one's clear enough. I, no analogy needed, huh? And she just laughs and says, yeah, you don't have to analogize everything, honey. It's kind of like, no. Uh, in this case, Isaiah is wondering, what analogy is good enough for God? What can I say to encapsulate him? And the Lord echoes it. Good luck with that, Isaiah. This is a tall order. Well, six chapters later, the Lord gives him one. And the Lord says in Isaiah 46, verse 4, I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and will deliver you. Now think of all those verbs. Make, bear, carry, deliver. Those are mother verbs. You want a good analogy for me, Isaiah? Then speak of mothers. You want a good analogy for me, Zenos? And write of a mother tree. Write of a hen that gathereth her chickens, her chickens under her wings. This mother tree, not just any old mother tree, their mother tree. 
No wonder the love of God in Lehi's dream is embodied as a tree, which Nephi is shown to be Mary, the mother of the Son of God according to the flesh. To me, it's so magnificent. No wonder the Lord of the vineyard keeps saying over and over that he wants to lay up fruit unto mine own self. Come home to father. Come home to mother. Come home to the family that cares for you. I'm, I'm grateful for that, for that insight. I needed that this week. I have a mother that's very easy to come home to. And, uh, and I see in my Father in Heaven that kind of maternal love. In, jo in Jacob chapter 6, Jacob gives a summary of all that he taught in chapter, all that Zenos taught in chapter 5. And an invitation. I won't, I won't uh, go into every verse, but in chapter 6, verse 4, he does exult with this. How merciful is our God unto us. For he remembereth the house of Israel, both roots and branches. They're all one for him, right? He stretches forth his hands unto them all the day long. That's that laboring diligently. And they are a stiff-necked and a gainsaying people. He still doesn't give up on the trees, though. But as many as will not harden their hearts shall be saved in the kingdom of God. If we'll just yield to him, if we won't harden our hearts and be so stubborn, we'll come home. He'll bring us home. This, Those are Jacob's words, as he encapsulates the 77 verses of Zenos' words. But that, how merciful is our God. He remembers us. He stretches forth his hands. He brings us home. This is coming from the same sensitive soul that exults throughout 2 Nephi 9 with all of those, oh, this of God and oh, that of God. 2 Nephi 9 is full of the O's and the woes, if you look at it. I went through all those O's and I tried to assemble them into one string of praise from one of my prophetic heroes, the prophet Jacob. And if you put them all together, here is what Jacob is saying, hinting at in verse chapter 6, verse 4, illustrating throughout Jacob chapter 5, rejoicing in throughout chapter 9. Oh, the wisdom and power, the justice and mercy. Oh, the way and the plan and the covenants. Oh, the grace, the atonement, the great condescensions through the goodness the greatness, the holiness of our God, the Holy One of Israel, the rock of our salvation. This is a God worth believing in. This is a church worth wrestling with and trusting and hoping and serving in. This is a child, a son or daughter of God. This is you that God cares about intensely. And you, des you, you need to have faith in yourself as well. I, I, I testify of the God of the garden, the Lord of the vineyard, the master of servants who are trying as hard as they can to help us come home. And I pray that your faith may go unshaken as you reflect on the efforts of the Lord of the vineyard in your behalf. 
I hope that this study has been a blessing to you. And look forward to continuing in other chapters soon.